1: I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long, long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, for sharing stories and sharing song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling here today and every day here at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present, and we are also broadcasting from Redfern right now. Redfern is the birthplace of black theatre in this country and Redfern is a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations people. Welcome to Race Matters. This is a show hosted by people of colour speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Darren Lasagas.
0: And I'm Tanya Ali. Right now we are increasingly seeing organisations, institutions and even entire industries, both locally and worldwide, being held accountable for their racist past and present. Today you're going to be hearing from poet Eunice Andrada, who this week as part of a collective of Filipinex Australian writers penned an open letter to arts journal Verity Lane following their publication of a creative non-fiction piece by white author Stuart Cook that now even the journal admits was racist and misogynistic.
1: Plus, uh, to mark our first hour-long show, uh, we thought we'd get a bit reflective. Uh, it's been a bit of a long... Not a bit. It's been a long road uh, <laughs> to get Race Matters to where it is today. And we're going to talk about that long road. Uh, a Race Matters origin story, if you will. And uh, let's be real, it hasn't been pretty. So, nah. yes, a whole hour. It's here we huge. are every week. We, we out here.
0: We out here. I'm so excited, um, and of course, Sarah Khan uh, could not be co-hosting today, but she—we will hear from her later in depth. Um, having more time right now, I feel like it's definitely welcome. There is no shortage of things to talk about at the moment. While, of course, anti-racist movements have been fighting for hundreds of years, which I feel like is very important to acknowledge, right now feels especially momentous. How are you feeling, Darren?
1: Yeah, look, um, let's not forget that the past few weeks of conversation have been driven by a fight against anti-blackness. It exists at every level of our lives, the interpersonal, the public, the professional. Uh, What's interesting, and this is what more and more I'm feeling, is that it's led to these conversations of the existence of systemic racism in general. Uh, it's being uncovered in places you probably might be pulling, you might think might be pulling their weight in representation in places like SBS, Triple J, NIDA, the MCA. Uh, you might be experiencing it in your workplace. Uh, I'm definitely having conversations with colleagues I've never had before. And uh, look, it's a lot to unpack. Uh, but I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that a pathway is being forged and, and I'm kind of excited.
0: Me too. Me too. I definitely feel hopeful. I feel like we have have to really harness that feeling of hope and make sure that we keep this going and we're going to be talking later on in the show about like momentum and how we need to use that right now absolutely You're listening to Race Matters. I'm Tanya Ali.
1: And I'm Darren Lasagas. And about a month ago, Australian arts journal Verity Lane uh, published a piece called About Lynn by Stuart Cook, who's a white author and academic. And in the piece, a white male author has sex with a Filipino woman in Manila. Uh, it immediately received backlash from a host of readers uh, about the racism and sexism in it. And Verity Lane acknowledged this by adding a content warning uh, in which they said the work and I'm quoting here, may be considered offensive to women and to people of color, particularly within the Asian community. But uh, uh, after apparently extensive consultation, they decided to keep the peace up saying they believe it Addresses difficult issues related to male white privilege in order to critique rather than exploit them.
0: Which I don't know about you, but I know very few white dudes who are fully aware of their privilege, let alone actually able to critique it, uh it all feels like a bit of a red flag. But I didn't actually get to read the piece and it's now been taken down thanks in part to Ilunga and ex Australian poet Eunice Andrada. I spoke to Eunice about the pervasive whiteness of the Australian literary scene and holding publications accountable. And just a content warning, uh, this interview contains mentions of sexual exploitation, sex tourism, and abuse. Here's Eunice speaking about the piece itself and it's, it's
2: written completely through the colonial male gaze. Um, it reproduces racist as well as sexist stereotypes about Filipino women because of the way the character Lin is written uh, with no agency. And it, it honestly, as many other people have said, it's a really dehumanizing narrative about Filipino women um, as well as more broadly Asian women. And it's the kind of narrative that... Um, I think, justifies violence against our communities because of that dehumanization. Um, and I think it was published without regard for the context that Filipino li- uh, that Filipino women live in, um, where we live in this colony of Australia where uh, Filipino women are six times more likely to be victims of homicide. And it's narratives like that. It's narratives like... Um, like the one Stewart Cook wrote, that continue to drive these justifications for violence. So I was honestly shaking when I first read it. Um, I couldn't finish it at the first go. I had to send it to um, my community uh, Filipino writers that I knew um, and to ask them if they had known about this and what the re- what the response had been. Um, but I was honestly very triggered um, by the by the piece. Um, for myself, as a survivor of domestic and sexual violence, I could say the work was truly, truly harmful, not just to myself, but to my communities as well. Uh, because the reality of sex tourism in the Philippines is so prevalent, it's something that's inescapable. Um, a lot of Filipino women spoke up on social media to call it out, um, as well as to relay their own experiences. Of, um, of encountering predators on the street while going about their daily lives. Um, so that's one of the ways that the peace had a true, truly harmful impact on the community.
0: Um, yeah. Yeah, it's so, so awful. Uh, and last week, you, alongside a collective of other Filipinex Australian artists, wrote an open letter to Verity Lane, ultimately demanding that they pull the piece and commission First Nations authors and authors of colour instead of publishing harmful racist work like this. Could you walk us through Verity Lane's response? Right, of course. Um, I also want to point out that Before my
2: own community had called out that piece and Verity Lane's publication of that piece, um, we only called it out last week because I only found out about it last week, but the piece was actually published on the 18th of May, so that was more than a month ago, and at the time of its publication, there were people who were against the piece being published. There were two people from Verity Lane's own team. There was a board member as well as someone who was on the journal's panel of editors who had called it out and were silenced by the managing editors, as well as the wider advisory board of that journal. So so there's that background. Um, I also just want to point out, before I go into the details of um, how my community got together, um, I also want to point out that Verity Lane does have have response strategies in place for this. Um, It's just that those response strategies weren't used Uh, In this instance, I know that a few months ago, uh, there was another story that they had published, um, and that story was also creative nonfiction. Um, It detailed a really problematic and unethical representation of a white female Australian poet, and someone had called it out, and it was immediately taken out, taken down. But for this piece, um, individuals had called it out, and they were silenced, and I knew last week when I had... Um, come across the piece finally, I knew that if I had come to them individually, they would not have listened and they would have silenced me as they had done with other people who had come to them individually. Um, And that's why I thought it was so important to mobilize my community, especially Filipino artists, um, and bring this to their attention because I I know they would be absolutely enraged by the piece, and they were, So we got together, um, drafted a group statement, and had a few people co-sign it. And it wasn't until I sent that piece to Verity Lane via email, as well as made that piece public on Twitter, that they finally took it down with no apology. So there was absolutely no accountability, as well as no transparency on their end, as to what the editorial processes were, behind the publication of that piece um, so we're currently at the stage where they have they have posted an apology on their website but it's an apology with again no transparency as well as no accountability because they don't talk about um, their social media response on Twitter which was really problematic and I'll talk about that um, in a bit but um, they also don't talk about the editor who accepted the piece, and they don't they completely erase Stuart Cook's role in all of this. um they 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 don't even name him in his apology, and they don't specifically name um, the the people behind the decisions to publish as well as defend the piece. So it's all very murky and um, a lot of people think it's a very weak apology um, that was only made because they fear further backlash.
0: Yeah. Can we quickly talk about that super unhinged Twitter response that happened? Right. Yeah. Just it was after, ridiculous. It was just uh-huh. after they had pulled the piece, right?
2: Yes. Yeah. So that was about last Friday and when I had made public the open letter that's Um, Philippinex writers and I had put together, Um, Verity Lane started responding. um, Responding is not the right word. They started lashing out at specific communities of people, and it was very pointed who they were responding to in this way, and that was people of color. Um, When people of color on Twitter were offering really valid and justified condemnations of that journal's editorial practices, they were blocked. Uh, and even worse, Verity Lane also made fun of an Asian female writer's English, um, as, well as, uh, as well as attacked that writer's credibility, just because that writer used the word hectically in their tweet, which is ridiculous, because hectically is an actual word, but also it just goes to show just how much white supremacy polices us and our language even as we are offering valid critiques. So there are those kinds of really um, outrageous responses um, alongside their very calm and thoughtful responses to white users on Twitter who were saying the same thing as we were. So there was that really huge difference in their responses to people of color um, as well as their responses to white people on Twitter
0: and i guess all of this sits within a wider context you know at the moment there is a lot of public institutional critique across industries not to say that resistance against white supremacy is by any means new but how are the conversations that you're having right now about whiteness in the literary world different
2: i think in the literary world there is a pro- there is a problem of white supremacy there's also the problem of elitism uh, because there are different circles in the literary world and some are circles that really protect each other and really cover up for each other. So as we can see in this example of calling out white supremacy um, and the lack of accountability, uh, we can see that as even as we as people of color demanded that they hold themselves accountable, there was still zero accountability and zero transparency. And the thing about white supremacy is it doesn't respond uh, to calls for reform. Um, It's something, it's this machine that constantly turns and churns and covers up its tracks. Um, And I also want to point out, um, because in different arts institutions, but specifically this this organization, um, people of color are represented in its board as well as its um, as well as its um, editorial, um, editorial panel. So there are people of color in that organization. Um, and even so, they, uh, they were still able to perpetrate white supremacy and perpetrate white supremacist violence against our communities uh, because of their values. Um, to me, it doesn't matter so much that an organization or an institution has people of color um, as part of them, Um, they are still absolutely able to perpetrate white supremacy through their values as well as how they respond to critique.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely agree. Um, I guess there are more conversations now than maybe ever before, at least in our lifetime. Um, How do you think we can best use this increased momentum?
2: I think we need to be amplifying each other's statements, as well as um, amplifying each other's causes, um, especially as marginalized communities. Uh, for example, um, in our recent cause, in our recent um, fight to get this piece taken down, so many other um, people of color allies um, hopped on and were able to amplify our message um, to make sure that issues like this don't fade to the background. And we need to be able to support each other in this way so that white supremacy doesn't continue to turn a blind eye to our pain and to the harm that they cause our communities. We have to be able to keep this conversation going. Um, For example, with that Sydney Film Festival controversy um, around that film Mukbang, Um, The conversation is already dying down, and there is a lack of accountability that Sydney Film Festival has shown um, about their decisions to choose that piece for an award, um, as well as to still herald that piece. Um, But we still have to be able to have these conversations and push for change, not just diversity, but for real structural change in these institutions, um, because these institutions are meant to be for us and meant to be for our communities, not just for a select few in their elitist white circles.
0: Hear, hear. And I guess on the note of amplifying uh, each other's work, I'd love to pivot to talk about the Digital Sala, a virtual Philippinex uh, literary festival that you co-organized. Could we, could we talk about how the idea for the festival came about?
2: Sure. Um, Finally, something happier to talk about. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Um, So the idea actually came about in April 2020 this year, and that was at the moment when uh, the COVID situation was reaching its height all around the world. And it, it didn't start, the Digital Sala Virtual Philippine X Festival didn't start in Australia. It started in the US. It started in California through the joint effort Of many people, uh, of many um, Philippinex authors and organizers that I I admire so much, um, who are mainly based in California, but also based in different parts of the U.S., and they came together to create this virtual Philippinex literary festival as a way of combating uh, the increasing um, artistic as well as social isolation of this time, and as As a a virtual audience member, I was really inspired by this festival. And um, the thing about this festival is it's completely decentralized. Um, And the way it works is um, people from around the world can create their own branches of the festival and can create their own events. Um, I should explain, I should have first explained that asala is a living space in any Filipino household. Um, So the idea is that people from all around the world can expand the sala to be able to cater to their own communities. So I decided to get in touch with those organizers in the U.S. and pitch my own idea for my own series of the digital sala events here in Australia, um, as well as incorporating some participation from, uh, from authors in New Zealand as well. So that's where it started. And throughout quarantine, it's been this immense beacon of joy as well as hope and community and nourishment to be able to have these platforms where we can come together as a community and just share art.
0: <laughs> yeah, how amazing. I I didn't know that at all. It's such an incredible, like, event model to have it decentralized like that. And you've been holding kind of online talks over the last few months. Um, I have, yeah. How's the reception been?
2: The reception is being really warm, thankfully. I think (laughs) spaces like this, whether they're in person or digital, are so needed in our community, especially in this time when uh, we are still facing so much isolation and increasing isolation because of the health crisis, um, as well as um, geographical barriers. Um, so it's so important to be able to make and create and share these open spaces where any, where anyone can take part. Um, I think for the Filipino community here, um, the, the, the response has been especially warm, um, and that's because of some of the issues that we talk about during the digital sala. Um, they're not just uh, the digital sala events that I've curated and organized are not just simple art-sharing events, but they're also community discussions where we can talk about things that impact our community um, as Philippinex Australian diaspora here in Australia, as well as um, issues that are impacting our communities in the Philippines. So, for example, um, our second event, we had a Black Lives Matter solidarity reading. um, That was very warmly received um, by the Filipino audience. Um, but the key thing about that event was um, its purpose was to be able to amplify um, Black-led projects in Australia, as well as the U.S., as well as raise awareness about police brutality here in Australia, um, to be able to educate. Um, uh, well, basically, in my Twitter responses, I told everyone, tell tell your racist titos and titas, like, tell your racist aunties and uncles to, like, tune into these events, Um, but to be able to educate our community about our own anti-blackness and our own anti-indigenous racism in, 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 in the path towards combating those issues within our own community.
0: It, it's such an important conversation to have, yeah, especially, I mean, in even more broadly Asian communities, there is this persistent anti-blackness that people don't talk about enough. And if yeah. we don't talk about it, we can't dismantle it. Totally. yeah, it's
2: it's such an ongoing conversation, especially with our with older members of our Filipino community, for example, who are so entrenched. In their ways and are so um, unopen to changing their minds. But um, hopefully art events like this are a step towards, um, I guess, a broader perspective for them.
0: Absolutely. And are there any upcoming events that people can look forward to? Yes, there are two
2: um, to be confirmed events. Ah, uh, there are going to be panel events involving um, Australian authors as well as US-based Filipinx authors, um, and we're going to be talking about decolonial poetics as well as what it means to build communities across literary diasporas.
0: Oh, so good! Cannot wait. So people can uh, like the digital sala page on Facebook to keep in the loop. Yeah. Yes. Uh,
2: We're also on Twitter as well as Instagram.
0: Love it. Covering all bases.
2: (laughs) Definitely. Oh, I also want to add that, as I said, the digital sala is completely decentralized, uh, which is a really lovely and nourishing way to hold a platform of events. So if anyone wants to create their own digital sala events, just get in touch with the digital sala online through um, social
0: media. Amazing. And finally, uh, this is a question that we ask all of our guests who come through on Race Matters. Eunice Andrada, when did you realize there was power in your race? I think
2: I realized there was power in my race when I realized the way my body was racialized. Um, See, I was born and raised in the Philippines and I didn't come to Australia until I was 15 um, until I was racialized as an Asian woman and racialized as a woman of color. so I didn't I didn't know that um, those kinds of identities could be imposed upon me. Um, but I've since taken power in in the label of woman of color as well as in the solidarity that that label brings. I think there is so much power in myself, but also, but more so in myself when I'm together with my communities and we're sharing that power and we're amplifying and elevating and championing each other, I think that's where the real power is.
1: Thank you so much, Eunice, for uh, letting us your voice. I also got to acknowledge the struggle going on in the Philippines right now, uh, where President Duterte has just signed the anti-terrorism law. Uh, Human Rights Rights Watch dubbed it a human rights disaster in the making. Uh, Basically, the the law opens a door for arbitrary arrests, uh, long prison sentences for people and organizations deemed to be in opposition of the president. Uh, And it's a dangerous time. It actually harks back to the Marcos era of martial law in the 70s. And something uh, this is something we're going to be checking in on uh, here on race matters as it unfolds we'll put a link up on our program page uh, to their card uh, a directory with links to petitions updates donation drives if you want to support junk terror bill uh, right now though I want to throw back to a song that gave a voice to the conflicts happening in Mindanao in the 70s under Ferdinand Marcos's uh, martial law this is Asin and Balita
3: sa lupang pinangako Ang lupang pinangalingan ko'y may bahin ng tugo May mga di makalimpan na sa hawlang ginto May mga punong walang dahon Mga pusong di makakibo Sa mga pangyayaring nagaganap sa lupang pinangako Mula nang makita ko ang lupang ito Nakita ko rin ang munting apoy sa puso ng tao Pinatungan ng mga kapulukan hanggang sa lumago Ngayon ang puso'y may takot sa lupang pinangako Lapit na mga kaibigan at makinig kayo Ako'y may daladalang balita galing sa bayan ko Nais kong ipamaagi Ang mga kwento at mga pangyayaring Nagaganap sa lupa Ipinangako Dati-dati ang mga bukit ay kulay gintong dati-rati ang mga iponsing laya ng tao dati-rati ay katahimikan ang musikang nagpapatulog sa mga bata walang muwang sa mundo ngayon ang lupang ipinangako ay nagsusumamong Patakal niyo ng luha Ang apoy sa kanyang puso Tingin niyo ang mga sigaw Ng mga puso ng saong kong inyo Kadangin ka bilang sa inyo Dul mga kaitsunan Nung paminaw ka mo Doon ako'y dalang mga bali Tagikan sa banwa ko, gusto ko nga ipahibalo Ang mga istorya Bisanato. sa banwang
1: This is Asin and Balita on FBN 94.5, a song that defined a moment of protests across the Philippines in the 70s uh, under a tyrannical Marcos government. And whether you understand the Tagalog or not, uh, you can tell it's uh, an incredible piece of storytelling. It's really infused with pain and, and with power.
0: Yeah, it's such a beautiful track. You are listening to Race Matters. My name is Tanya Ali. I'm
1: Darren Lasagas.
0: We have been doing this show for a long <laughs> time. Uh, and, you know, we're here on a Saturday uh, for an hour now, which feels... It does feel like a little bit of a strange time to have moved to an hour-long time slot when we're seeing, like, all of these organisations kind of, like, jump through hoops to... Uh, make themselves look better uh, when it comes to race. We can confirm that that is not what's happened here. This move has been in the works for a really long time. Uh, And the show itself started back in 2018. Race Matters was first a 15-minute segment on Up For It, FBI's breakfast show. And we started it under the strict proviso that it would become a longer show as soon as a slot became available. At the time that we did start... I'm pretty sure it was literally the only time that race, culture and identity would be explicitly mentioned and discussed on FBI at length. Yeah, so-called. I mean,
1: the next, the next, the adjacent would be like the culture guard on Arvos, in which if, you know, art, an exhibition or something that we were covering would uh, address some um, ideas of race or identity, it would be discussed, but never candidly or never autonomously, you know.
0: Exactly. Uh Sarah Khan can't be with us in the studio today, but I caught up with her a little bit earlier to talk about what it was like having these conversations in fifteen minutes.
4: It was a lot of work for no time. There were people in the room that didn't need to be in the room. And it was a uh, like it was just a struggle because no none of the conversations could really flourish. Mm. and fill the space and they were really struggling to it was like they were still being held down in a box and they were trying to like burst out of this box. But like having just a little segment to do conversations that would just never ever happen in a small segment like that anyway. It kind of was like what like it was just it was a lot of like work and a lot of energy and like but not a lot of time. I'm being
0: nice about it. <laughs> yes, very <laughs> measured.
4: <laughs> <laughs> See again. I'm going back to
0: 2010. I'm like, how much can I say? <laughs> we laugh, but that is so real. Yeah,
1: it's so wild to think how different you can have conversations about race and identity when you aren't framing it within a structure that isn't controlled by you that's what i said before about autonomy it's like a microcosm of how hard it is to communicate in in wider organizations in the in the workplace uh how can you be candid about what you think how you feel what you want and when you've been wronged when you're constantly trying to make it palatable uh, and not upset the status quo, or as Sarah said, you know, be measured.
0: That's it. I And I said it to Sarah, and I'll say it again, I feel like there's no better time than now for us to be open and candid about our experiences. I mean, we're seeing so many people across industries, and especially in the media, calling racism for what it is, which feels like freeing, I guess, because so many of us have spent our entire professional lives uh, and personal lives holding that stuff in, sometimes even gaslighting ourselves about whether it's real.
1: Yeah, the past, I mean, I'm going to say past few weeks, but I've been doing it for a long time. Just thinking back on experiences I've had either here at FBI, uh, other workplaces. I mean, I've been at FBI for, I looked at my LinkedIn the other day, and I've been oh. at FBI for six years. Oh, my God. Me, yeah. too. Whoa. Yeah. Where were you? No. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I started as, a, like, an off-air volunteer. Like, I was on the front line, which is what we call that reception desk. And I was doing that. Then I was doing some other sponsorship stuff. And I put my hand up for some production work. And I was producing a couple of shows. Um, one of them, which, which was, was Saturday Lunch with Lexi Savides. So, it feels weird to be back here on a Saturday. But it feels good. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, looking back on it, I can think of a few experiences where I told myself, oh, that's normal, or like, that makes sense, but looking on it now, in hindsight, which is, you know, what they say about hindsight, um, you have to really... Reconcile some some feelings, you know, like or oh, reconcile some feelings you didn't realise you were having, um, because of some things that had happened here at FBI. I'm being vague, but you know what? We'll go into it a little bit later.
0: Oh, we will. Yeah, I think I've always been pretty acutely aware of my race while at FBI because uh, back. 6 years ago in 2014 when I started I was also in first year uni learning about intersectionality. Oh, <laughs> Thank you gender Honestly, studies.
1: formative time.
0: Truly I I like always think about the time the first time I heard the term intersectionality and then it was explained to me I was like oh this is me. Um, and it's funny because I don't know about your experience, Darren, but for me, FBI has always felt like a really safe space in terms of being queer. Um, so there was always that tension because one part of me felt very at home, but a bigger part of me was always aware of being the only woman of colour in the room most of the time. Uh, and when I first started hosting Monday Arvos back in 2017, I remember realising that at that time I was the only, like, primetime host who was a woman of colour, which is, like not ideal, to say the least. Uh, The program grid has changed a lot since then, but representation is still lacking in so many ways. For one, there's a glaring lack of First Nations and Black voices on air, and as a station with an outwardly progressive uh, or white liberal reputation, FBI actually has a pretty bleak track record when it comes to retaining black First
1: Nations and talent of colour. Our co-host Sarah came to FBI a little later and uh, she directly slot into Race Matters.
0: Yeah, I spoke about that with her as well. What was your first impression of FBI?
4: Um, it was white house music, I don't know, like <laughs> white progressives that love a lot of house music that are from the inner west. That's the if I'm being blunt. Yeah. Um, that's exactly what the vibe that I got and um I kinda had to like be cautious coming into the space because I've been in lots of spaces with um white liberal people that are do gooders and I always end up getting burnt for it. I always end up getting tone policed. I always end up getting censored and erased and gaslit, And so I, and I'd gone through so much of that. So then when I came into FBI and that's like exactly the image I got, I was just very cautious. And that's why I didn't really, I didn't really go out of my way to do any networking when I came into FBI or really learn about FBI because I was like, I'm here for race matters and I'm here to tell it straight to people that have no idea and are looking for information in comfort zones and I'm coming in here to make it uncomfortable. So I'm not really here to make friends because I remember I got someone asking a question of like, you know, why don't you do this at Cree Radio? And I was like, am i gonna talk to black fellas about stuff that they live. Like I'm gonna tell them about things that they know already. I was like, no, I'm what I'm doing, I'm doing is coming in here to do hold accountability and come into your comfort zone come into your space and make it uncomfortable and exit. So I wasn't really like too keen on much networking when I already came into FBI. So I kind of kept very close to you and Darren. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I was like, I'm only, I'm only here for them and I'm only here for this show and for this content. Um, and I kind of kept it a little bit separate to FBI. I just kind of saw, I just kind of saw FBI as, um, like a smallest version of triple J <laughs> mm. I mean, <laughs> and I had my, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was like my kind of vibe on it. Like obviously that's changed now. And I've met a lot of different people from FBI and um, lots of people that are very much doing the work that we put forth on the show mm. and are not throwing their fragility in our faces about it. So, you know, I've also had to kind of like give, the benefit of the down as well (laughs) Mm. in terms of that. But I definitely don't regret coming in with um, my own barriers and my own walls up. Like that's just what we do all the time with every institutional space we come into.
1: Yeah, this made me think about radio as an industry. It was a really interesting point uh, when Sarah uh, made about FBI being like a small version of Triple J. all oh, this idea that FBI feeds into the national broadcaster, talent-wise. Uh, I feel like a lot of people think about it, but never really break down what that means. Mm. By nature, radio is such a one-in, one-out industry. There's only so many spots on air, and such a large pool of talent uh, vying for those spots. Um, Tanya uh, t- you you and I are very lucky to have uh, those spots, um, but how much does the on-air grid reflect the community it broadcasts to, you know? Like, how did they get there, and who's calling the shots? Um, And if you ask those questions, I reckon you'd start to paint a pretty clear picture of what success for a radio station looks like, and whether or not that looks like you.
0: Yeah, and that wasn't more clear when it became crunch time for Race Matters about a year, maybe almost a year and a half ago. A year and a half ago, yeah. Which I feel like really marked a shift in the way we think about this show. Uh, Basically, we were all brought into a room with management and a board member to talk about the future of the show because it was the end of 2018, the first year that we had done... 15 minutes on The Breakfast Show uh, and we all felt that 15 minutes was absolutely not sufficient uh, and we kind of were uh, demanding that we got a little bit more time, just half an hour, not a lot of time, uh, but yeah.
1: Yeah, and we say demand because I feel like, okay, this is going to feel pretty uncomfortable to talk about. A broadcaster while I'm being broadcasted on yeah. it. But I feel like we were promised a, f- a few things, including training, i.e. pathways, for us to develop as a show with uh, two of our... Uh, members at the time, not having the same radio experience that you and I had had. And so to kind of get a level up, but we didn't receive that. And therefore it ended up being this tension uh, behind the scenes where we were kind of expecting something to happen that was promised to us, but then wasn't. And then when we brought it up formally, we were met with a wall mm. and it was hard to comprehend because it felt like we were, or we're fighting a losing, like a already lost battle. Like we were already behind or we weren't deserving of something that we thought we were deserving of. And there were some things said in that room that had really stuck with me since and which are quite uncomfortable to unpack, but which I think are so important for people to hear and for Tanya and I to discuss because these conversations are happening, happening behind so many closed doors and doors in so many places. But... What is dangerous is that we think that they don't happen Mm. or that we think that they were okay or that we think that um, we deserve those conversations, that we were in the wrong. Um, And it's a classic feeling of being in a conversation, hearing something off and only realizing later what you really wanted to say. Because in the moment, there are so many things going through your head. You're speaking up. You're speaking up to management up to people in positions of power you're not only speaking you're asking for something for support for accountability for affirmation you're trying to prove that you have value and that's a hard thing to do when there's a legacy there's a precedent before you that says that you don't and finally everything you say could be used to prevent you from getting that and all the while the people in power are white and you're the person of color in this conversation and there was this one line that was said to me when we were saying that this show deserved a bigger platform was that we need to consider the audience of color and we need to consider the general audience and I wish I arced up harder than I did back then Um, but I know that that was wrong and I said what is the difference between me and the general audience. Am I not part of the general audience? And this is what we mean when you say you didn't imagine your experiences. While we're thinking that, we're desperately trying to convince ourselves that this isn't happening because that would be, like, too much work to unpack.
0: Yeah. it Like, thinking back to that meeting is very hard. Um, but at the same time, because of all of these broader conversations that the world is having right now, I can't stop thinking about that meeting. Like... I never I never thought that I would ever have to be in a situation like that at FBI of all places a place that I work full time a place that for the most part has felt like a safe space for me and it just goes to show how white supremacy is like truly everywhere Um, you did ARC up by the way Um, (laughs) thank you you, because I remember hearing that And just not knowing what to do with it Um, and you were really measured Um, lol but you know Sara and I kind of spoke about the meeting too and spoke about how you have to be measured to be taken seriously and I definitely felt a lot of strength in that room because of us being there together. I think maybe that's the only conversation that I've had at FBI that uh, there were more people of colour in the room than not. Um, and look, it it's hard. Uh, Sarah and I also spoke about whether in hindsight we would have done anything differently in the meeting.
4: I think with all of these situations where we're blindsided and um, gaslit by white people for asking for the bare minimum, really. Um, and it is. Like, we're blindsided by it. And when that happens, we're always in shock. You, you always go into a moment of shock. And you really need a moment to gather yourself because it's like someone's punched you in the chest. And you still... It doesn't matter how many times it happens, it's still a fresh feeling. And you have to then sit there and take a moment to like deal with the aftermath of that punch in the chest and catch your breath again gather your thoughts and then come up with like some type of answer that sounds measured but it's still proving your point and defending yourself without trying to take it to without trying to you know get aggressive about it as they would want they you know they would say and like it doesn't matter like it's always going to be like that for me like I'm always going to be in that moment and even in the future I know I'm always going to be up against like moments like that and I'm going to be punched in the chest and I'm going to be dealing with the aftermath of it catching my breath and gathering my thoughts and giving my retort back and then thinking back on it later being like well I could have said this instead but I'm just like it's going to be the same every time because every time it happens it's always a fresh feeling it still feels like shit it's, you're never ever going to be prepared for it and so I don't like I think like In my head, I like to think I would say all this other stuff, but I don't think I still would have been able to um, gather it in time to bark it back at
1: them you are listening to race matters welcome to our brand new slot you're with darren lasagas and tanya ali and for our first show we're diving into the race matters origin story uh, we've come so far and uh look we've been sharing some pretty raw moments uh that have happened on the road to get here and uh really what i said before was just the tip of the iceberg of that conversation oh, alone yeah. uh but hey here we are Here
0: we are, uh, and we will be coming to you every week, so I'm sure we'll be able to pick up that conversation uh, (laughs) many a time. Uh, Sarah Khan, your other Race Matters host, could not be with us today, but she is very much present, as always. I had a chat with her about the show earlier, and this is what she said about how much we've grown. We have done
4: so much growth, Tanya. Like, it's insane. I was just having this conversation with um, Celeste, Celeste Carnegie yesterday, because it popped up on my miracles was my birthday yesterday and so all of my memories from my birthday last year popped up we were looking at it and we were like we are not the same person <laughs> as we were in 2019 and then when I think about 2018 I'm like oh wow yeah <laughs> who was that woman honestly she was still a boss woman she oh, was yeah. just on a different journey
0: <laughs> totally yeah. totally it's been a uh, seriously like yeah full of growth last yeah. year so I think I'm really proud of us when I think back I'm like we did what we had to do we like stood up for ourselves and we got what we wanted as well
4: exactly exactly and I think like the biggest thing from that moment as well was you said it before was we were all very aware of each other in that space and we were so aware of each other's feelings and each other's emotions that we kind of all were really trying to just protect each other in that space as well so as like shitty as it was it was really it spoke really strongly to who we were as a team and what we were there for and we were always there to protect each other and protect our voices
0: oh that's so nice (laughs) yes (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we I feel like we owe a lot of that growth to the incredible guests that we've had on the show: Nessa Turnbull Roberts, Naika Gori, Candy Bowers, Benji Ra, Wani Lafrey, Benjamin Law, Alexander Chi, Sab D'Souza, Sue Min Shim, and so, so many more, so many more. Uh, we have some incredible guests lined up for the rest of the year as well, so watch this space. That is all for Race Matters this week. You can find us at fbiradio.com forward slash race matters or wherever you get your podcast. Race Matters. Race Matters. Race
1: Matters. Race Matters. Race
0: Matters.
1: Race Matters. Race Matters. Race Matters.